Hey, we're going to be getting into the scriptures as we do on Sunday mornings. We're in the Gospel of John right now, and uh, so I would invite you to turn to John chapter 6 if you have a Bible. If you do not have one, a couple of handsome gentlemen are there, so just go ahead and lift up a hand if you need a Bible, and uh, one will be passed out to you. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, and uh, feel free to keep it. We're in John chapter 6, and Asher is going to come and read for us this morning. Good morning, Emmaus. As you come to the passage, would you just go ahead and stand up? So John chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for the stories about the life of Jesus and 
How much Jesus means to us, Father. The gift he has been to your church and to our lives. And now as we consider this part of scripture, this story, I pray that we would be able to see how this connects with us. How Jesus connects with us and how some of the errors that were made by this crowd can also be made by us and correct us from error, Lord. I pray that this morning you would bring comfort where we need that, but that maybe today correction and discipleship and redirection is what we need. And I pray that you would draw all of us more close to the ideal of what it is to really follow the Lord Jesus. So as we open now the scriptures, we look at them as they've been read. I pray that you would bless now the teaching part of this morning. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen, amen, amen. So I want to talk this morning about a bit of a phenomenon that has happened in modern America. We see it uh, pretty clearly in 21st century America, but the same phenomenon we're going to talk about this morning has also showed itself into the church. And so as the country, so the church, and uh, what we're going to find this morning is from our text, human nature hasn't changed very much because the crowd that we see here in John chapter 6 does similar things with Jesus that the church and society do. And about 100 years ago in the 1920s, the roaring 20s, um, we started to see in America a new level of prosperity. And uh, we started to be economically and kind of like reaching this, this pinnacle where we were just thriving as a country. And uh, there was a phenomenon that uh, economists coined this term called consumerism. And consumerism simply defined on an economics term, terminology, is, is simply to the continual expansion of one's wants and needs for goods and services. And so as America became more successful, business then became hyper-focused on the consumer. So all the marketing on how to attract and please and cater to men and women who pay for and consume goods and services. And so this entire like shift took place in society. Well, society informs the church often, unfortunately. And so we saw a shift take place inside of the church. Uh, Richard Halverson writes about this. He's a former chaplain for the United States. He observed this phenomenon of consumerism as it took place within the church. And so I quote Richard Halverson. He writes, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. And then it moved to Rome where it became an institution Next, it moved into Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. Think about those words, the church becoming an enterprise. Uh, A church in America acting like America and really getting caught up in consumerism. Uh, A a book I just recently read by Sky. Jetany called Divine, The Divine Commodity, Discovering a Faith Beyond Co- Consumer Christianity. Sky Jetany writes, uh, he calls this the Christian American phenomenon. He says this about the consumer Christian um, in the church today. The church has become a corporation. Outreach is marketing. Worship is our form of entertainment. And God is our commodity. 
And so this week, uh, this is going to be sort of a part two from last week, if you were here. Last week, we addressed the subject of bad religion. And uh, last week, we talked about bad religion in the form of legalism. But this week, I want to talk about bad religion as it comes in the form of Christian consumerism. And I think we see some of that reflected here in our text this morning in John chapter 6. Um, to our text, uh, we see here that Jesus, in chapter 5, had come to, we looked at last week, he was in Jerusalem for one of three feasts, most likely, and he heals a man at the pool of Bethesda, and it's the Sabbath day when he does so. So the religious leaders get all frustrated with him and accuse him of violating Sabbath law because a man was healed on Sabbath. And Jesus deals with the religious on this area of their legalism. And we talked about that last week. Well, John chapter 6, um, Jesus has now traveled 70 miles from Jerusalem. And uh, you'll see it when this map comes up. Um, Jesus was there in Jerusalem down here. And then he travels way up to the Galilee. And so he's 70 miles from where he was in chapter 5. Um, and, and when Jesus comes to the Galilee, he's come into a different part of Israel, uh, a different socioeconomic. So if you would, Jerusalem was more the sophisticated, the religious, the wealthy, the affluent. Galilee was more of a backwater place, more of a rural place, more of a place for the blue-collar, everyday, salt-of-the-earth type. And the, the Jerusalem uh, men and women, the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, sort of looked down their noses at the Galileans for their lack of sophistication. Um, the Galileans spoke with this really heavy, unique accent, and so they're a little bit harder to understand. And so there was kind of this, this divide between Jerusalem and Galilee. And it's important to realize that, so Jesus has just transitioned. He, he was in a very more affluent place. He's gone into a more blue-collar town, and the issue with their bad religion wasn't the same issue that you're facing in a more affluent place. There was a consumer mentality in Galilee. And uh, I, I think we have to confront that in the house this morning um, and ask ourselves if our Christianity reflects the crowd in John chapter 6, a people who wanted Jesus not for who he is, but what he gives, a people who love Jesus not for his heart before what's in his hands. And that can often be an error that we commit. And so um, I just want to ask us simply put out for us this morning, why do you follow Jesus? What's your motive? What's your desire? What's the, the outcome that you're looking for? Why is it that you would say, maybe you wouldn't say, but if you would, that you're a follower of Jesus, why are you a follower of Jesus? Jesus goes into the Galilee where there's a, a little bit more of an economic struggle. And uh, it says that in verse 2 of, of, our, of our chapter that they came to Jesus, notice verse 2, because they saw the signs and wonders he had performed by healing the sick. And so we know the motive. They're coming to Jesus because they've seen what he can do. And they want to see either the magic show that he does, the Christian or the spiritual magic show, or they want to see uh, maybe their loved ones healed. So their motive is to, to see what Jesus can do for them. And... Uh, Mark's gospel tells us in chapter 6, the same story recorded in all four of the gospels, that when Jesus saw them, the crowds, he had compassion on them, 
for they were like sheep without a shepherd. So we know that Jesus was moved with compassion for a crowd that was seeking him for ulterior motives. And whatever our motives are for seeking Jesus, I think two things are clear. Uh, Jesus knows what your motives are and he loves you anyway. And, and also, if your motives are off, Jesus is going to seek to change those. So this crowd comes to Jesus, and they want to consume him. They want something from him. They've seen what he can do, so they have come around him. But Jesus has compassion on the masses. He has compassion on this very large crowd. And so he looks to one of his disciples, Philip, and he's like, Philip, like, figure out a way to feed all these people, which is great. He, it says that he was doing this knowing what he would do, but he wanted to test Philip to see what Philip would do when confronted with a massive need. And Philip, being sort of a more calculating accountant type, sort of takes out his calculator, if you would, and gets out a spreadsheet. And for those of you who are, are that type A type of accounting people, you understand. When you, when you find out a problem, you're on Google doing research and spreadsheets and calculators and budgets, and you're going to figure this thing out. Well, Philip, looking at the massive crowd, we're told it was 5,000 men that's not counting the women and children. So most scholars think there's about 20,000 people there. And Jesus just looked over at one of his disciples and said, hey, how are we going to feed these people? Figure it out. Knowing what he was about to do. And so Philip does this calculation and he goes, Lord, if we had like 20 denarii or 200 denarii, uh, should I say, which is about the equivalent of, of an average laborer's half of their year's paycheck. So it's like equivalent of like $20,000, if you would. He's like, Lord, even if we had 20K... We couldn't buy enough food just for everyone to have one bite of bread and one bite of sardines. There's no way we can do this. And then Andrew, maybe overhearing the Lord, kind of flick it to Philip, and Philip's scrambling with his spreadsheets and calculator and money and calculations and counting heads. Andrew just goes around and he starts asking for donations. And apparently the only person that was willing to donate was this little kid, a little boy, and he donated his Lunchable. How many of you grew up on Lunchables? Well, man, aren't Lunchables good? I don't know what the stuff in there was. Erasers and like some weird loaf of like meat flavored ham or I don't know what that was. Tofu flavored ham. Um, but this little boy presents his little Lunchable, if you would, to Andrew. And Andrew comes to Jesus and says, well, this is what I've got. But I don't see how this could take care of so many. And the great part of the story is, as you know, it worked. Jesus took what little came to him, and he blessed it. And then somehow, in, in ways that we can't even explain or understand, a miracle took place in the hands of Jesus. He took a little boy's lunch, and he fed the masses. And, and the food kept coming and coming and coming, and the disciples were passing it out and passing it out, knowing where it started and seeing where it multiplied. And once again, Jesus proves that he can take care of us in unconventional ways. Amen? That, 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 you know, sometimes there's a place for stewardship and budget and wisdom as it concerns finances, but there's also the provision of God. How many of you have seen God provide to you in, for you in unconventional ways? When it didn't seem like it made sense on a spreadsheet or a budget or in your bank account, the Lord just comes through. And so, so Jesus comes through in an unconventional way and feeds 20,000 people, probably, so much so it says that they were all full, and the Greek is, says that they were actually glutted. It's like, you know, if you go to Golden Corral or whatever, and you just went back two or three or four times, you know that feeling of glutted that you get at a feast where you're just like, I, I, I am so 
full right now. I can't fit any more food. Some of you don't have that overeating problem, but every once in a while, it's a fun thing to do. Um, there, there's just people rubbing some packed full bellies. Just, oh, yeah. And, uh, and on top of that, not, as, not only is everyone glutted, but there are 12 baskets of leftovers. So every one of the disciples gets to take home a doggy bag uh, of food from one boy sack lunch. And again, what's interesting about this is that John points out in the narrative that it was the celebration or near the celebration of the Passover. Now, why would John include a detail like that in verse 4, that the Jewish Passover festival was near? Well, if you recall, the Passover commemorates the Exodus, where God took his people out of Egypt after 430 years under Pharaoh's hand. And as he delivers them out, of course, the lamb is slaughtered and the blood of the lamb put over the doorpost as death passes over each home. The Jews are spared the death that passed over that night. But then from Egypt, they spend 40 years in the wilderness. And it was those 40 years in the wilderness where they saw God provide in surprising, unorthodox ways. For 40 years, they were fed from bread that came down from heaven. They didn't work for it. They didn't do anything from it. They couldn't explain it. But when they came out of their tents there in the wilderness, there was manna on the ground for them. And so it was at this time that Jesus, the new Moses, at the time of the new Exodus, where Jesus is saying, I am the bread provider. And, and later on, he's going to go on to use that illustration of food to say, I'm the bread of life. I'll take care of you. I'm your sustenance. One commentator actually pointed out something I thought was interesting, though. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as doing two reproductive miracles as it concerns food and drink. He does reproduction of wine, John chapter 2, and he makes more bread, John chapter 6, which was pointed out, these are the elements of the Lord's Supper. So there's something there for us to, to sort of dig our teeth into as we consider the way Jesus does this miraculous thing here in John chapter 6. But I want us to notice the crowd's reaction to this miraculous multiplication of food. Look at verse 14, how the crowd reacts. The people saw the sign Jesus performed and they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Now, notice verse 14, and, and you can just say to yourself or say to the person next to you, they were right when they said this. Maybe you can just say that to somebody next to you. Just They were right when they said this. But then verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they recognized Jesus as the Deuteronomy 18 prophet that Moses spoke of. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. So the crowd recognized this is that prophet. He just made all the bread like Moses back there with the manna in the wilderness. This is him. This is the one Moses spoke of. And they then had right orthodoxy, we would call it. They, they believed right. Right orthodoxy, right believing, but not right orthopraxy. They, they, they did not behave correctly. Orthopraxy is right behaving. They believed right, but they didn't behave right. Now, we would typically say in the church, how you believe affects how you behave. And what you believe should affect how you behave. But they misapplied what they understood about Jesus. They were right here. He is the prophet. They misapplied it to say he is the prophet for our purposes. 
He will do for us what we want him to do. And they tried to make him king by force, but Jesus juke moved that, slipped away, and would not be king over this crowd. Now, why? Didn't Jesus come to be the king of all the earth? We call him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Why would at this opportunity to become their king, would he avoid this? Because he knew something about them. He knew that their motives were off. They wanted to consume. They, they had wrong motives. They, they were approaching Jesus in a way he's not supposed to be approached. And so Jesus slips away from this crowd because he will not be king over their agenda. He will not be king over your universe. God does not exist for you. You exist for him. And they were attempting to say, this is what we need. We could use Jesus the bread machine. We could use Jesus the food maker. So be the king that's like the genie in the bottle that whenever you're convenient, will rub your lamp and say, bless my business, bless my family, bless my health. Take care of all these things. And then when you start to get uncomfortable and convenient, we just say, go back into your corner of the cosmos. We'll call you when, you, when we need you. That's the kind of the king they were looking for. And Jesus will never be that sort of king. He is God. He is good. And he loves you, but he is not all about you. You're not the center of the universe. And so therefore, we have to re rethink the way that we look at Jesus and the church approaches him. Not as consumers, but as those who say, we submit ourselves to you. And so Jesus will not be the king over this type of people. You know, I think a lot of times in the church, we, we have an idea that um, Jesus is here to fulfill my hopes and dreams. That Jesus is here to help me get a nice house. And, and he may do all those things, and those are blessings, but that is not what Jesus is for. And, and I think sometimes we get it wrong because, you know, I have this error mentality sometimes that I can think, well, like if, if God doesn't give me what I want, then he's not the king. But when he gives me what I want, when my life is well, when I'm healthy, when I love my job, when I have all the things I want, then he can be, continue to be, I'll give him king credit for that. But Jesus slips away from those types of environments. He doesn't become king over that. He, he needs to correct that type of thinking within the church and um, I think this consumerism can often play a part in how we follow Jesus. A few questions I would uh, dare you to ask yourself as it concerns the way that you approach Jesus and his church, to ask yourself the more hard question is, why do you follow Jesus? What's your expectation? And even the harder question is, have we become a people who are more consumers than worshipers? Do we come to Jesus to get what we want? Is Jesus our vending machine, our bread machine, our, the one who gives us things? We love his hand, but we don't love his heart. We, we love Jesus for what he can do, but we don't really love him for who he is. A few questions to consider. Number one, as it concerns uh, consumerism in the church. Number one, do I view the church as providing a product or service that is good feelings, self-help programs, children's activities, Practical advice for successful living? So how do you view the church? Is this a place for you to get a product? Secondly, do I operate under the notion that I will leave when I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth or proper service? So are you here on contingency? 
I'll, I'll be part of this church or that church or follow Jesus until things don't go my way, until I don't feel like I'm getting what I so well deserve. Thirdly, is my loyalty to the local church like loyalty to a particular business? I am happy as long as I get what I want. And, and, and America is not doing us any favors, y'all, because everywhere else they will cater to you. I mean, try to leave AT&T if you have them for a phone service. They will bend over backwards to keep you. What do we have to do to keep your business? Everyone's selling and marketing something to us. And so we're used to people, when we're about to leave them or pull our business away, running after us and saying, hey, what what do we need to do to, to obtain your business? Jesus won't do that. The church won't do that. The church that's healthy. Now, it's not like we're trying to be inconvenient for you and not bless you in any way, shape, or form. But, but the reason that we exist as a people is not so that we all get real happy, so that we all get what we want and that every program we ever wanted in a church is here for us. I mean, y'all wouldn't be at Emmaus if that's what you're looking for. Fourthly, do I come to church to worship God but avoid intimate relationships with others? The church can often be like a religious checkbox. Other words, I hear a lot of people say, man, I love coming to Emmaus, but I don't really want to get involved or connected with people. And I think, Really? I don't know how it's possible for you to have a relationship with the head of the church, Jesus, the head, and ignore his body. You don't just get to be in a relationship with a floating head. Jesus has a body. And he says, love my body. Be a part of my body. You can't have me without my body. Like my wife, if she just says, you got a nice face, but the body's got to go. I'd be like, baby, you you get the whole thing or nothing. All of me or none of me. You, You can't just have my body. You can't just have my face. You got to have all of me. And a lot of people at the church are like, oh, I just, you know, I just, I, w- I want the head. I love Jesus, but that, th- those people. Number five, do I see myself as primarily an individual who comes to worship God? Maybe even give my money, but should not be expected to serve or invest in my church community. We encourage everybody at Emmaus, if you're new here, especially, um, to not just show up and let one sermon, one gathering be your ultimate determination. Give us a, give us a little bit of time um, to, to get to know us. But I would say that uh, if your mentality is that, you're never going to take that next step forward and, and start contributing, then, uh, then you are a consumer. Guilty as charged. Um, if, if you're going to participate in the mission of God with God's people, you've got to do some of the household chores. And that's what I say. There are people who are guests in my home and I don't make them do the dishes or sweep the floor or clean the bathrooms. If you come to my house for dinner, we're not making you do chores. So if I invite you over, don't worry about it. You don't have to bring your cleaning stuff. Um, But if you move into my house and you live with us, you will be a part of the family. That's part of being family. And, and, And the question that we have to ask ourselves as it concerns our relationship to Jesus and his church, am I trying to be family or am I just trying to be a guest in the house all the time? You can't, you can't keep being a guest. Sometime you gotta pull up to the table and say, okay, I'm, I think I'm gonna move in. I think I'm gonna be a part of this family. And if so, you can't just take. You can't just show up, bail when the service is over, not have any relationships, not help us at all, not contribute, and then say, yeah, but I'm, I'm a part of God's family. Well, like, in theory... Like, you're just floating out there. Yeah, I'm a part of God's family because I love the head. Yeah, but you don't love the body. Well, yes, I do. I love the body. How so? What do you do? 
How do you love the body? In which way? Like, how would we know you love the body? Well, because you contribute relationally. You contribute, uh, you help, you serve, you participate in the life of the local church. And, and that's the way that we love Jesus. And so I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves, and I have to ask myself, is, is there a consumer inside of me that needs to be changed and, and corrected? And I know this, if there's an error here, Jesus wants to change that. He wants to turn us from consumers to worshipers. And this is how Jesus says that change takes place. Notice verse 28. This crowd of consumers comes to Jesus and, and he eventually comes full circle and, and speaks to them in verse 28. They asked him, because he had just corrected them, I know why you came to me. Look at verse 26 for a sec. He says, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and have been filled. In other words, you're hungry again. You like Jesus the bread machine, so you came back to find me. I know why you're here. But then he says, as they ask him, okay, then what must we do, verse 28, to do the work of God? Jesus says this, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. So if I'm going to move from consumer to worshiper, if I'm going to take the next step forward in my relationship with Jesus and not just be like this crowd in John chapter 6, the, the key thing that Jesus says is that you must believe on the one whom God has sent. That's the one work. They're like, what works do we have to do? Jesus says, this is the work, singular. So it's not a long chore list. You want to follow Jesus? You got to do all this stuff. 613 commandments. No, you want to follow Jesus? You want to do his works? This is the work, singular. Believe on the one whom the Father has sent. So if that's the one thing Jesus says, this is what you got to do, then we have to answer the question, then what does it mean to believe on Jesus? What it can't mean is that it's about doing something because believe is not to do, that follows belief. So to believe is not to do, but to trust. So the first thing we, we must do if we're gonna move from consumer of Jesus, religious goods and services, to worshiper of Jesus, we must believe that means belief is trust. I trust Jesus. And, and every solid relationship has got to be based on that trust. I trust Jesus has my best in mind. I trust he is who he says he is. I trust in him. I trust that I, I'm safe with him. I trust that, that, that good will come as I relate to him. I trust Jesus. I mean, every parent here knows that an effective relationship with your kids, if you're gonna get them to eventually obey the relationship has to be built on a relationship of love and trust, not just dictatorial authority. Like I am the biggest male in my house still, even though my 17-year-old is taller than me, I still outweigh him and I say old age and treachery, I will always win, um, no matter what. <laughs> just got to brainwash him that way. So as I get older and older, they'll remember he's mean um, or he can be. Um, but as, as, you know, as the largest male in my house, I can win off sheer authority. I can stomp my foot, raise my voice, and slam my fist and say, you will obey me. You say, that's terrible parenting though, Brian. What a loss as a dad. The better way to father is to say, son, daughter, Annika, Toby, Silas, Justice, dad loves you. Do you trust that dad has your best interest in mind? Yes, dad, we trust you. Yes, dad, we know you love us. So that when I ask you to do something, you'll do it because you know I'm not just being a dictator. 
I love you. I'm trying to help you. I'm not trying to hurt you. And, and relationship with Jesus has to start on that platform. Not, not a dictator from heaven telling you what to do, but a loving, good father that says, come, receive my love and my grace and learn to trust me so that when I ask you to do something, you'll say, I don't understand, Father, but because you said it and I trust you, I'll do it. I'll do things for some people that I don't trust just because I'm scared of the repercussions. But if you really want an obedient relationship with anybody, you're going to have to learn to love and trust that person. And so learning to love and trust Jesus is what belief is. If you just want to boil it down, what does it mean to believe on the one whom the Father sent Jesus? Is learning to trust in Jesus so that when he asks you to do the hard thing, you'll be like, I know it's the right thing, Jesus. It would be easier for me to do, go my own way or do the thing that, that everyone else is telling me is the right thing, but I trust you, Jesus, that if I walk in your ways and, and walk the highway of holiness, that, that good will come. I trust you, Jesus. But trust also, our belief is also, it's trust, but it's also belief isn't just intellectual. Now, there is an intellectual side to Christianity, and hopefully at Emmaus, if you stick with us, if you're newer here, um, we, we are a church that values thinking, using the mind. That's why we do discussion forums about science in the Bible. Um, that's why we talk about the scriptures and go verse by verse through them, and hopefully talk about them logically. But to be orthodox doesn't mean that you're a believer, because James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and they shudder. So devils are probably more orthodox than any of us here. That is, they have all the right belief system, but they don't have eternal life. So belief is trust, and it's more than just intellectual assent. To, yes, I believe in the fact that Jesus is God's son, therefore he is God, and I, can, you know, I, I should trust him because he's God. But, but actually, to believe in Jesus is to treasure him as supremely valuable, to see the value and the goodness in Jesus. I wonder how many of us would be able to say that our view of Jesus is high, that we adore Jesus, that we value Jesus, that he matters to us, that we see Jesus as glorious and worth all things that he would ask from us. Because until Jesus becomes your greatest treasure, you will only love him when things are going your way and you will consume the good and chuck him when it's bad. You'll say, you're dismissed to your corner of the cosmos until I get my way again. But if you love and cherish Jesus as supreme, it's not what's in his hand, it's his heart, it's his person, it's the one you've come to trust and love and adore and you see him as the great treasure that Jesus said there would be a man who would find a pearl of great price and he would sell all of his possessions so that he could go buy, back and buy the field so he could obtain that pearl. Jesus is that pearl of great price. Jesus is the one worth selling out for. And that's what belief is. And it's from that place that Jesus says, if you want to stop being a consumer and start being a worshiper, then you've got to believe on the one whom the Father has sent. Trust him and learn to value him. That's why Bible study is important, because we learn about the person whom we adore from the scriptures. That's why worship is important. When we sing these songs, this isn't just music at church. These are songs that our team is saying, these songs 
connect us with the worth, the supreme value of Jesus, and we all need to give Jesus that worth so that we become a worshiper, one who believes on the one whom the Father has sent, because this is the work of God. This is how you do Christianity the way that Jesus intended for you to do it, and you don't act like this crowd of consumers. And I'm concerned by bad religion. Whether it's legalism or consumerism, it's invaded our culture and our country. I've uh, been reading this book by Sky Jatani, uh, again, called The Divine Commodity. And in it, he, uh, he talks about Vincent van Gogh, the Impressionist painter. And uh, something I didn't know about Vincent van Gogh is apparently he was a missionary at one time of his life. Now, if you've read anything about him, you art buffs, uh, you know he was a very troubled person. But he also was a follower of Jesus. He was wrestling with Jesus, uh, and he was a missionary in Belgium to a district in Belgium of uh, greatly impoverished coal miners. And uh, he had this so like he he went to the poorest of poor and lived as they lived. And uh, he became very disenchanted though with the church. And uh, if you studied art and you know anything about Van Gogh's paintings and his. Famed painting, his most famed painting, Starry Night. Um, you'll notice that Van Gogh, he uses this color yellow a lot. Because yellow in Van Gogh's uh, artwork was his symbol for divine light or sacred love, as he called it. So whenever you like, look at a painting, Van Gogh, if you like to look at paintings or whatever, you'll notice that you know, this, this yellow is the warmth. And, and in this particular painting, Starry Night, um, you'll notice that, you know, as Van Gogh's seeing divine light and love, he paints the cosmos as, as, as God's light and love, divine light and love. He sees it in the stars. But then he takes that same yellow and he begins to paint in these little, in this little imaginary village, he paints all the, the houses have that same light in them, which I think is kind of an interesting, you know, message to us. Um, but there's one building in this painting, I don't know if you've noticed, that does not have the divine light. It's the church. Because in Van Gogh's opinion, the church had lost her light. And so he paints this to tell a message that might be missed on some of us. And he's quoted as saying this, the God of the clergyman, he is for me as dead as a doornail. And he called himself no friend of present day Christianity. Now like anyone else, Van Gogh had his own faults, and his own framework that he had to work through. So his indictment of the church may not have been correct. It may have been somewhat or may have, he had his own issues he had to work through. But, but the, the concern of the day is, is that there is some bad religion in the church today. You don't have to go visit many and, and look around very uh, much to realize that the consumer mentality has come upon us. We have found ourselves in this John 6 paradigm where we come to Jesus and he goes, you're not here because of me. You're here for bread. You're here for prosperity. You're here for me to give you something. I will not be the king over that. I'm the bread of life. You should want me more than you want stuff and things. And if that's the kind of Christianity and the kind of church and the kind of walk with Jesus that you want, you need the Holy Spirit to correct you. I need the Holy Spirit to correct me. And I'm saying, search us, O God, and see if there be any John 6 ways in us that we are chasing Jesus and want to make him king by force because we want to prosper. Nothing wrong with prospering. 
But that is not the point of Christianity. Do you know that for the majority of the first century, second century, third century, for millennia of the church, Christians did not prosper. They suffered greatly. Some of the greatest men and women who've ever walked across the stage of history who loved Jesus did not prosper and were not wealthy. They were poor. They were martyred. They were wounded because they saw Christ as exceedingly valuable above their earthly comforts. And so we have to ask ourselves about our own love for God and the church. Where has the light gone? Where is our love for God and our fellow man? Why the shallowness? Why the selfishness? Why do we look at Jesus as our bread machine? Preoccupied with him as the one who hands us things. One of the prayers that I often find myself praying, um, and I still am waiting for God to show up in this way, at least in a way that I think the church would notice at large, and that is, uh, I'm just asking God to awaken his church. Awaken our affections for Jesus. Awaken, awaken a desire, something that no preaching or singing or church uh, program could do, but, but literally the Spirit of God just awakening the church. And I often find myself going back to this Hosea chapter 6 verse written to ancient Israel, but also I think... Um, Something for us to consider. Hosea chapter 6, the prophet writes, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. When we shift, as many of you have, from looking to Jesus as just simply one to satisfy your human need, and you begin looking to Jesus as the one to awaken your soul, one to be loved, we begin to see this outpouring that I believe Hosea was talking about upon a nation. And, uh, and that's just my prayer for us, brothers and sisters, and for Emmaus as we continue forward, that we would never be a people that cater to consumer comforts. We love you. We're glad you're here. We want you to stick around and grow with us. But we won't do that at the expense of Jesus. We can't, we can't do things to make people comfortable just for the sake of comfort. And if that's the kind of church you look for, then you have to, you have to ask yourself a question. God, what, what, what's inside of me that has misunderstood the purpose of me following Jesus Christ? I follow Jesus because of Jesus. And if he blesses me with things, great. If, he, if my life takes a turn like Job. I say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord because I'm in it for him. And, and if he does good, great. If things go awry, hey, that's part of living in a fallen, broken world. But Jesus is still the treasure we find. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Fathers, we now enter into a time of worship and communion, valuing you at the the bread and the cup. I pray now that um, we would hear the heart of Jesus Christ for us who
calls out to this crowd that wanted more bread, more things for self to consume more, that we would hear you say to us, I'm your bread of life. I'm all that you need. I feel the need in your heart. I am the Lord of all. And and I would pray for those of us here right now that have needs. And it would be real easy for those needs to take front and center stage and that all we think about is Jesus in relation to this need. And I know our needs are real. Some of us have real severe needs. But ahead of those needs is the person of Jesus and you're our desire. And forgive us and we pray as a group on behalf of the church, not just our community, but the church. Forgive the church for being consumers of God as a commodity and not worshipers as God, the Savior, the Lord of the, the, the King of all the earth, the Father, the friend, the one who's in control. So God, we want to receive you for you, to love you for you, and not to take, but to give and to receive and to enjoy Jesus today, that we would become believers, worshipers, those who trust in Jesus, those who hold you as exceedingly valuable above all other things. And I know that within me is selfishness and narcissism and pride and a desire for my own agenda before yours. But I pray today that by your word and by your spirit, you would begin to convict our hearts and and change us, God. Make us your servants. Make us those men and women who come to you because you're good and we need you, God.